March 21st, 29th. On the 33rd day of Russia-Ukraine war, I continued receiving media and speaking requests to address a so-called crisis in the Ukraine. It is almost surprising, or maybe not at all, that Russian propaganda is so pervasive that it imposes a false caution on someone who thinks that despite the ongoing full-scale destruction and erasure of a culture, the word war might be a little too extreme to use. For eight years now I've been arguing that when Google Maps shows Crimea as a Russian territory to clients with Russian IPs, it is not an example of good service, but an act of communicative militarism or the convergence of capitalist and military methods and goals that exposes a company's complicity with Russian disinformation campaigns and the normalization of an act of aggression towards Ukraine, the annexation, the annexation of Crimea. And now The Intercept reports that the contractors who work for Google to translate company text for the Russian market all received an update from their client requiring them to refer to the ongoing Russian war in Ukraine as extraordinary circumstances. Here, censorship takes a form of an ephemism policy that goes levels deeper to impact language itself. After putting a short fight, Apple also confined, complied with Russian demands in 2019 and now shows annexed Crimea as part of the Russian territory on its apps. With apps, Russian propaganda gets under your fingertips and is part of your epistemological landscape. And then the vicious circuitry of communicative militarism from the territorial and cartographic to linguistic suppression is reproduced by cultural and research institutions, regulatory organizations and agencies, banks and news channels, who all become defensive of their language, saying the phrase military conflict is good enough, but no, it is not. When communicative militarism goes full circle to normalize cartographic and linguistic violence, it pushes remote publics to accept or become indifferent to a full-scale war. News websites keep the evacuation train schedules constantly updated. Whenever they can, people keep moving from the east and center to the west and southwest, leaving their homes behind or what's left of them. The United Nations organization reminds us that 10 million people in Ukraine left their homes by now. There are no humanitarian corridors on March 28th due to intelligence reports about potential provocations by the invaders. After Ukrainian defenders have broken the supply lines of the Russian invaders northwest of Kyiv, Russian occupation troops are begging for food in Ivankiv and Oranor, where I probably know all elderly villagers. 
According to the reports from the general staff and the armed forces in Ukraine, Russians are not acting aggressively and are not looting. But according to the accounts of local witnesses, they are stealing everything they can from local schools and offices. On March 27th, the mayor of Mariupol said that Russian forcibly deported between 20 and 30,000 citizens. On March 28th, Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Irina Verishchuk already mentioned 4,000 people who had been moved from, Russian to, uh, from Ukraine to Russian-held territory without any coordination with Kyiv. Some of the deported have already managed to escape and make their way back to Ukrainian territory. They have written the manual of escape for those who are still in Russia, providing legal advice and the possibility to ask help through a bot, along with a detailed description of the available routes out. Many cities, especially regional centers, have been hit by rockets. The photograph of Mykolaiv Regional State Administration building, as it looks this morning on March 29th, is another unforgettable image of destruction during this war. The resistance of Ukrainian civilians in the occupied cities is heroic. Kherson is isolated, but is protesting with Ukrainian flags from the morning of March 26, Slavutich, where the workers of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant live, is occupied. People came out to protest with Ukrainian flags too. The Russians took over the city hospital, abducted the mayor as they do, but then released him. He said they needed to get rid of Ukrainian police for them to give up all weapons in their possession and then they said they would leave the city but set up their military posts. Most refugees have left our town. It's empty, but not empty. On the surface, town life is almost like it was before the war with just some streets still blocked with Czech hedgehogs Still many men and occasionally women in military uniform wearing kalashnikovs across their bodies. More cars from different regions and you'd often see shelter signs with a pointing arrow. We took a walk with Ira to the old town on March 23rd and the restaurants were all full. It looked like a normal sunny spring day all my emails still begin with, I'm safe here, right after the greeting. Now that there is no need for Czech hedgehogs, Sergei wants to produce bulletproof, bulletproof uh, jackets. I took him out of it. But what if the bullet goes through just because you made a wrong stitch or something? How would you live with it, or even with the possibility of it happening? His next project is making knives. 
I contribute half of the equipment cost, thinking it might also be useful after the war. On March 25th, between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m., I heard the intense sound of several jets. I think since the sound continued for about 20 minutes of something disappearing and then getting louder and louder again, I went to the balcony, but there were no traces in the sky, only the noise coming through the heavy low clouds above and all people on the ground with their heads up, motionless. This missing scene was so revealing about our life here being in and at the same time on the outskirts of war, in our place of imminence, Kamenets Podilsky. We still have several air raid sirens daily. On March 22nd, two sirens were heard during my graduate seminar which I returned to teach on Zoom after Lanette, our internet provider, hooked up a reserve line. There was another siren later that evening too. I didn't feel I had to, but went down to the basement, as I did in the first weeks of the war. Alone, I sat there on the pile of styrofoam, that has now been torn off the floor and walls. I opened my computer, wrote several sentences, then closed it and went outside. I wanted to take a walk, but it was after the curfew time set at 9 p.m., so I couldn't. I stood near my building for some time, listening to the siren and watching the stars. Under the regime of wartime blackout, all the constellations are clear and readable. And before my neighbors called the police on me, which now may happen if they see a figure in the dark, I took the elevator up to my apartment. February 25th, 26th. The first day of war leaves 137 dead, 316 injured. By the end of the third, the numbers are up to 198, including three children killed, and 1,115 injured, including 33 children. Among the killed, we learn on the morning of the 25th, are 13 border guards of Snake Island, in Ukrainian Zmiini. This is an island in the Black Sea, only about 300 kilometers west of Crimea, and they were attacked by the Russian battleships. The audio that emerges right after the event captures a communication between the border guards and an approaching Russian Navy vessel. This short exchange has immediately become probably the first legend of this war, and it is already known by many of us by heart. Snake Island, I'm a Russian warship, 
and I repeat, I propose you lay down your arms and surrender. Otherwise you will be hit. Do you copy? And we hear two quiet voices, someone somewhat strangled by the upcoming inevitability, talking between themselves. Well, this is it. Should we tell it go fuck itself too, just in case? One of the voices then responds via a megaphone in Russian, investing all the lung power it can produce under the circumstances. Russian warship, go fuck yourself. Ruski корабль, иди нахуй. Kyiv, Kharkiv, Sumy, Nikolaev. As well as several other cities, it's becoming difficult to keep track now. Uh, and the rocket strikes all day long. Russia users cluster munition against civilians. We've heard from our friends staying in the subway shelter in Kyiv, in Troyeshina neighborhood, all day of the 26th, and they are told to remain there until the 28th. Those who didn't do a good job on their emergency backpack are now in trouble. The photo of kids in the shelter goes viral. Multiple videos of street battles are posted on Telegram channels. I follow only four for sanity reasons. The Russian troops are disseminated in many Kyiv neighborhoods often captured by the territorial resistance groups. Unfortunately, there are multiple cases of sabotage. 1,700 hryvnas, or about 57 US dollars, is offered for setting an explosion. Other jobs on dark websites include setting fluorescent marks for Russian paratroopers, if we see those, we should immediately report via a bot created by cyber police by photographing them and reporting their GPS coordinates. Water and gas infrastructure are often found marks for destruction. It is hard to tell if the videos of the captured Russian soldiers are representative, but those we see in the mm, but those soldiers that we see in the videos look quite miserable. Many of them say that they went for training. Some cannot explain how they appeared on this side of the border, or say typically that they got lost. Lumpen proletariat of war. Ukraine calls for the Red Cross assistance in returning the bodies of killed soldiers to Russia. So far, the bodies remain unclaimed. A week ago, any cyber attack could make the news. Now, the volume is skyrocketing, but nobody pays attention. Fyodorov announces the formation of a cyber army. The government and other sites, also banks, are constantly down and up. No panic about it at all. We just wait a bit and all is working again. This is a new normal. 
Anonymous are in the game now, launching full-scale cyber attacks on Russian government websites in retaliation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The site of the Russian Ministry of Defense is hacked with all private data of the Russia uh, of the Russian servicemen made available for download via mega upload. They breached and leaked about 200 gigabytes of emails from Belarusian weapon manufacturer Tetrider. This company has provided Vladimir Putin with logistical support in his invasion of Ukraine. The website of the Chechen Republic for deploying troops to Ukraine is down. The Kremlin site is down and many, many more. The latest, the most spectacular one. Russian state TV channel have been hacked by Anonymous to broadcast the truth about the, what happens in Ukraine. And they post videos short in the battlefields of civilians dying, of bombing the civilian blocks and parts of the cities. Multiple specters of platform war. Twitter blocks the registration for any new Russian accounts, possibly preventing the formation of both armies. The Instagram account of Chechen dictator Ramzan Kadyrov with 9 million followers is blocked. YouTube switches off the monetization of Russia today. Starlink service is now active in Ukraine, Elon Musk reports. More terminals en route. The weaponization of advertising is used too. Roskomnadzor demanded that Google removes the monetization restriction placed on Zvezda TV, Sputnik and other channels for their distortion of information and propaganda. When Facebook refused such requests, the state partially restricted access to Facebook, which also means Instagram. Glamour, glamour influencers now call for Putin's impeachment. What also should be seen in this now fashionable multiple acts of support, by thank you truly, is that the role of corporate platforms in the amplification of voices of propaganda and dictators who have literally threatened to cut heads off for a very long time was very active. Their significant, their significant contribution to where we are today should be clear. Part of my small circle of friends in Kamenitz-Podilsky, in the southwest of Ukraine, where I am, have now signed the contracts with the territorial defense. Others are mobilized following the other Ukrainian tradition of resistance, revolutionary anarchism or Makhnovshina. The gender division of labor is still very traditional, though, in our local activism. Women are weaving camouflage nets, men are making Molotov cocktails and anti-tank obstacles known as Czech hedgehogs. Serhii is an artist and he is welding instruments both for multi-purpose design appear to be incredibly useful for that. New waves of refugees 
are massively arriving every day. Yesterday I went to help Natalka drop off the bags of clothing donations. I asked a man patrolling the school where has now been uh, which has now been turned into a refugee shelter. He said more than 400 people arrived on the 25th. This is in a single day to just one of the shelters. On the 25th, we experienced our first siren. Experienced, that is, without actually hearing it. If I hadn't happened to be in the store downstairs where someone received a phone call, we wouldn't have had no idea. I was without my emergency backpack and had to run to the 10th floor to grab it and then run two blocks down to the street to my parents as they have a basement, cold and wet, without any possibility to sit down or lean on the walls. I called my mother and told her to grab their emergency bags and be ready to go to the basement. Exactly a year ago she broke her spine after several surgeries and many, many hours spent last year on learning how to walk again, she can now make her way to the basement. My father, by the way, is already back to reality and now and knows whose war it is. There is a military base next to their house and the soldiers told me the alert was called off. When I arrived, a quick run between their houses and mine is probably four or five minutes. I was impressed how my 80 and 85 year old parents were all ready and collected. I told them they could proceed with cooking dinner. The man whose apartment I rent told me the siren was for training purposes, although we were recently informed that there would be no longer uh, any training sirens and no more church bells ringing. These are also used for alerts only. Yet the city telegram channels insist the threat was real and there was a rocket in our region either registered by the system or shot down. The information about it is confusing. In the evening, the mayor's channel sends an apologetic message confirming that unfortunately, the sirens were not uh, heard in the majority of our town's neighborhoods. Six sirens are finally installed. They claim just an hour ago and I'm as I'm writing this dispatch on the 27th the fourth day of war for a long time I've been fighting a horrible habit of falling asleep with a TV on one day of war and the habit is gone now when I put my herd on the pillow silence feels divine and I only imagine how other people who lived through the explosions and strikes, who are wrapped in that lasting sound of war today, 
must feel in the moments when that disappears. When I wake up too, silence feels orgasmic, literally, with a warm wave running through my body. On the evening of the 26th, the armed forces have received information that all of Snake Island defenders might be alive. As it comes through Russian media reports, the Ukrainian servicemen on the island were taken captive to send to Sevastopol. So the legend may have another ending, despite the president having already conferred the hero of Ukraine titles to the border guards of Snake Island posthumously. February 27th, March 5th. I thought it just me, but Asya says she's losing sense of what day it is. I feel the same. Not all the time, but some moments, definitely. Writing stops, only fragmented notes are made. But I will now bring them together by reminding myself what I actually wrote to Asya one of these mornings. It is important to clearly mark dates and reflect on how things change. Reflect, analyze, structure this flow. So here we go. The war tension oscillates between two poles these seven days, AI and nuclear. An educational message received via several telegram channels on March 3rd explains to the broad audience what a deepfake is. In case this method of disinformation is used, the channel proactively informs users they could see a video where Zelensky announces a full capitulation or ask to surrender. Despite how realistic it might be, it is a deepfake. They asked and I had to go through all this information with my 80 and 85 year old parents slowly and in simple words, unpacking the nuances, complexities, and danger of this technology so that such videos do not fall on them like an information bomb. But then we talk about the war, and after giving me a short news update, I realize they might not always distinguish between Ukrainian and Russian TV brought to their screen by a random click. They are confused, overwhelmed, and their reality is a convergence of two absolutely conflicting narratives. If this is not a deep fake, I don't know what is. Since the end of February, still before the war, there have been attempts to envision various possibilities of engaging AI in the current Russia-Ukraine cyber war. During and after the Maidan, deepfake profiles spread disinformation using online stock photos. Now such profile pictures are generated by AI. Interesting, why was AI engaged for such a mundane task? Is there anything about these faces? Are they made particularly trustworthy? 
do they appeal to some social groups, to some media audiences? Many questions arise. Still, the major use of AI in this war seems related to decision-making, where AI serves as a tool that collects and analyzes data, including data collected by drones, parses it, and gives the most optimal outcome to help make tactical decisions. A graphic summary of the nuclear theme by Charlie Hebdo says it all. But cyber war is thermonuclear, not only because of the tactical raising stakes as it crawls closer to the nuclear weapons, for instance, as it happened during the Operation Olympic Games when the United States and Israel manufactured a state-of-art malicious computer warm Stuxnet to disrupt Iranian nuclear facilities, but also due to its ability to turn other objects into nuclear weapons. This is what occurs when missiles hit the sites of the radioactive waste disposal facility in Kyiv, or when an inactive Chernobyl nuclear power plant that cannot be abandoned without daily routine operations is in danger because the personnel of the plant are taken as hostages by the Russian troops and that they have been working their shift for already 10 days, split into groups, exhausted and with a limited supply of food and medication. Or when the line of combat is drawn through Zaporizhia with six active reactors and the local nuclear power plant, currently the largest in Europe, the column of Russian heavy military machinery entered the territory of the nuclear power plant in Energodar, a satellite town of Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. At 11.03 p.m. on March 3rd, Energoatom telegram reports a visible rocket strike in the industrial zone. A fire breaks out as a training building outside the nuclear power plant around midnight as a result of the continuous shelling of its buildings and units. Then, at 6.20 a.m. on March 4th, it is extinguished after continuously burning for at least four hours throughout early Friday morning. The radiation level, though, has not changed. The nuclear power plant is now under control of the invader. Envisioning a scenario of a hypothetical accident, the Norwegian Radiation and Nuclear Safety Authority has been modeling the speed and scope of pollution dissemination in the framework of the meteorological prognosis for the following three days. And this is a telling point of meeting between AI and nuclear as they use the te this technology to envision a potential catastrophe. Another dimension of cyber war unfolds as a battle of cyber groups. On February 28th, a medium reported a list that uh, includes information about different groups uh, and their alliances, 
So the countries are Ukraine, Russia, or those unknown. There are different types of attacks, ranging from DDoS to different ways of hacking or data breaches, spreading ransomware. Different platforms are involved, mostly Twitter, but there are others, and different potential locations from West Europe to Russia, Belarus, Georgia, Ukraine. And the day they started this activity is actually not just now, but it began somewhere in 2020, preceding the day when the war began. The internet in our Khmelnytsky region, and especially in my town, has slowed down incredibly. People are often hacked, possibly through the Wi-Fi. My IP address, along with my neighbors' phones and computers, were hacked two days ago. And we moved to a mobile internet. Zoom and Skype were down. My media comments and interviews all fell through yesterday. I'm writing this fragment on March 1st in the basement where I am and my neighbors are hiding from potential rocket strike. This is the fourth siren that has gone off today. Often the three of us, my neighbors from Kyiv and Chernigiv and I, are alone here, while other neighbors remain in their apartments. The town has not been hit yet, so people are really giving up on turning, on running downstairs for nothing. Some nights I turn off a siren alarm on my phone. Yes, there is an app for that. Because I need sleep. Before I got this app, I was receiving air raid alarms by telegram. Because despite all the additional sirens installed in town, I still couldn't hear them in my apartment. Neither do my parents in their place. I watch my telegram and then I get a warning message. Then I call my mother so she and my father can get to the safe room without windows. In the end, they cannot make it to the basement each time, although my father has prepared it for the worst case. And after I make this call, I run downstairs with my emergency backpack. On the one hand, I consider stopping this sprints downstairs to save energy. On the other, I feel like it might be important to embrace this war regime completely, install it in my body for safety reasons. The basement where we hide is very small, perhaps one and a half per four meters. It is all concrete. I bought thick styrofoam and my neighbor covered the floor and put some near the walls to lean against when you sit on the floor. As a shelter, it is shitty. One entrance, no real ventilation, and provided how this building is built, bricks and sand, a small hit would probably collapse it like a house of cards. Each time when I find myself there, I made a note to myself 
that I still do not believe our town will be hit. I've been thinking about the logic of these air raid sirens. We are told the automatic system reads the space of the entire Ukraine and identifies the trajectory of a potential rocket flight. Then the alert goes off in all cities and towns on its way. In moments like this, we are probably all united by the flight of the rocket, with most of us probably sharing the same affect. This is a profoundly cybernetic event of control and communication in the animal and the machine, an intermixing of complex heterogeneous systems at a huge scale. On February 28th, it was reported that 25 works of Ukrainian naive artist Maria Primachenko were burned when Russian forces attacked Ivankiv, another horrible loss on the list of many losses of exquisite masterpieces of architecture, monumental sculpture, museums and more. Born in 1908 in Bolotnia village, now in the Chernobyl zone, Primachenko witnessed two world wars and the nuclear colonialism of the Soviet Union with the Chernobyl catastrophe as a crowning event. But then it was reported that a local man ran into the burning museum in Ivankiv to save the works, and he did. Asia calls. Having escaped Kiev after two first days of war to her hometown, she is hesitant whether she needs to run again. My home, your home, I say. But the escape routes are the problem now. Escape routes and transportation, as well as logistics and companions. So she doesn't know. When I read the current numbers of people leaving the country to become refugees, I think the reality is now best measured by this statistic. But we all know how it will end. Putin, who climbed to power by stepping on the dead during the first Russian-Chechen war, staging the explosions that hit civilian apartment buildings in the Russian cities in September 1999, who stayed in power by boosting his popularity during second Russian-Chechen war and Russia-Georgia war, the annexation in Crimea and the war in Donbass, the war in Syria, and many other acts of aggression, including what his regime has done to his own country, will fall from the huge monument of flesh and blood he has been building for himself for 23 years. He will fall during his last war, of which this is the tenth day. February 24th. Asia texts me at 5.47 a.m. from Kyiv. She says, I hear explosions. I'm shaking. 
And as I hear this, I'm still in denial and try to calm her down. She says, no, this is an invasion. It is all over Ukraine. I open the news and this is indeed an invasion and it is all over Ukraine. Around 5 a.m. this morning, major Ukrainian cities, including Kyiv, Kharkiv, Odessa, Dnipro, Zaporizhia, Ivano-Frankivsk, and more, east, west, north, and south, woke up to the sounds of airstrikes and shelling. The attacks were coming along the Russian-Ukraine border, targeting for the most part the Ukrainian military facilities and airports, but shot down drones, rockets, and planes fall onto civilian buildings and in the midst of cities, causing death and destruction. Putin's operation to demilitarize Ukraine has begun. It expands by Russia moving military equipment and troops into the country's southeast. The government introduces martial law. Several hours later, The Ukraine military report six Russian planes and the Russian helicopter shot down in Lugansk region. The Russian ground troops crossed the border north of Kharkiv and in Chernigiv region. The reports on causalities start coming around 10 a.m. From this moment on, things speed up. Around 1 p.m., I go to town with Sergei. Despite all intelligence, neither I nor him and his partner Natalka have got necessary meds or food or energy supplies at home. We are still not sure whether it is paranoia or we indeed should buy all this away from the current front lines. Soon we find out that there is no drinking water left at the store in my building, no bandages and no pills or heart medications in drug stores. Antibiotics are almost gone, no power banks, no hand lights, and the stores do not accept cards. The lines to ATMs in town take about two hours to withdraw an amount now limited to 100 hryvnias, 1, which is about uh, 34 US dollars. The bank, where I usually withdraw cash from my Canadian card, now serves only their own clients and private bank, my Ukrainian bank, is down. In the evening, I sit down to finish the notes for the day, but I recall that I still haven't packed that emergency backpack, and everything I got for it today is still sitting on the couch or on the kitchen table, and my documents with some cash in US dollars are somewhere else. I really do not want to get up, and I tell myself that nothing will happen this night. But I go packing and I set all devices to charge, including my new power bank that I actually managed to find today. Then I think I better turn off the lights in my apartment on the top floor of the tallest building in town. A call with Asia. It feels ages from our conversation in the evening a day before, within only hours of invasion. She says, the world is different now. We are different. But I hope not. February 12th to 13th. The war, they say, is scheduled on Wednesday, February 16th. 
it tells a lot. I do not think the full-scale inv invasion will happen. The Western media escalate the panic, which uh, didn't make sense to me at first, but now it seems they are doing it strategically to deliver a message to one person only, Putin. If not Crimea and Donbass, I would have thought it's nonsense, but then they were Crimea and Donbass. There is a sense of disorientation among people. Nobody knows what to do or if anything should be done at all. And at what point you slide into madness as you think about all this. Chartered jets massively left the country yesterday and all our oligarchs are gone now. Some people are really afraid, it seems. There are teams of territorial resistance assembling in every town, from the former military or those who served in the army. I think of going there to see how training is happening and who those people are. Two dimensions of life, suddenly. One is completely normal, as usual, and the other is a continuous militarization of everything. The sense of fakeness is everywhere. The sense of reality is lifted. Our mayor's office released a map of shelters. According to this map, one is in my building, but nobody among my neighbors knows where exactly it might be.